The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. All right. Hey, so we're going to look at a pretty lengthy text. That's not my norm, but I, it, was, it was really hard to want to even split this text up. It's too beautiful. And to do that, I'd have to do like part one, part two. And I had no desire to do that. Right. So we're going to look at 24 verses and we will be done before the Steeler game. Because it's next week, we have plenty of time. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. All right. Hey, so here's the deal. With Luke 14, here's what's happening. Jesus is really answering questions that came in chapter 13. And here are the two questions that he's really going to answer through this parable. And they, they, you find them in verse 18 and 20 and verse 23. The, the first question he's going to answer is, what is the, the kingdom of God like? What is the reign of God like? He's going to answer that explicitly in this parable that he's living out. The other, the other thing he's going to be answering is found in verse 23 in chapter 13. And they asked this question. They said, and they being the crowds and the Pharisees, they said, are those who are saved few in number? They were trying to understand, is it, it's going to be a lot, right? It's going to be all of Israel. It's going to be part of Israel. I mean, we're seeing lepers be saved. We're seeing all these different things. It's going, going to be a lot of people here in the kingdom, and they're trying to figure it out. And, and I think you're going to see Jesus answers those two questions beautifully in chapter 14, right? Never read these things as detached stories from one another. Luke wrote a gospel, right, for O Theophilus, so that he might have confidence in this good news, because he's literally laying down his life in hopes that the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is true, not just for him, but for all who would come to believe. And he wants to know, is this real? So he, he got Luke, and he said, Luke, I need you to do some investigating. I need to know if this is real. And Luke wrote down this account via the Holy Spirit at work in him. So let's look at the first six verses of Luke 14. One Sabbath, here's that word again, man. The, the, the Pharisees love to figure out the Sabbath. When he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, right? You ever been to one of those lunches? It's a good time. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers, that's scholars, Bible lawyers, and to the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? <laughs> you can't just invite Jesus to a lunch and expect that this is going to go exactly how you think it should. He's like, we keep talking about this. You keep dancing around it. Let me ask you a question. But look at their answer. They don't have one. They remain silent. Then he took and he healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. Could not, would not, right? Oh, how cruel religious people can be at times. Cruel. They're, they're setting a trap for Jesus. But they're exploiting a man who's suffering, right? Notice it's a, it's a ruler of the Pharisee, right? He invites Jesus over for lunch, and whoa, there just happens to be a man with dropsy right in front of him, and, and they're all watching him very intently, wonder what he'll do with this. It just shows that they're in bondage. The people at this dinner party, they're a lost bunch, 
They're tragically lost. They are tragically far from the kingdom. Yet they think they're in. They think they're in the kingdom. They're watching him carefully. And, and once again, it's, it's like they got this prop of a man with dropsy. By the way, dropsy is not what I had growing up, right? My mom would call me Messy Marvin because everything I would eat, I would drop and I would spill it on me, right? I did, that's not dropsy, right? <laughs> dropsy in this sense, I'm, I'm just going to read a quote. Dropsy refers to an abnormal accumulation of liquid in cells or tissue causing swelling and poor circulation. And the swollen limbs and belly would make this man's condition obvious to all. A primary symptom of dropsy was an unquenchable thirst in a body already bloated. But drinking only made the victim thirstier and worsened the disease. That's from a commentary by David Garland. Here's the deal. Um, at that time, they absolutely believed dropsy to be caused by gluttony by just overindulgence. So the Pharisees weren't having this guy as like, he's just one of our friends, right? No, they brought him in because they want to use this man to trap Jesus into saying something. So they could say, oh, oh you broke our rules. And Jesus, he just goes right to him, right? It's, it's pretty clear this man's a prop. However, the healing of this man, it, and, and the silence of the Pharisees reveals their religious bondage. They should have rejoiced. This isn't even complicated, right? Just imagine right now that there's somebody here who's suffering with something over the last, let's say, 15 years, and you've watched them suffer. You've suffered with them. And, and let's, let's just, let's go back in time and say, Jesus is here, right, in the flesh, and he literally heals that person. I don't think you need to think long and hard what you ought to do. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But they're, they're silent. That's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem when God's people can't get excited about God doing amazing things in their midst. I don't know. Ooh, it's on the Sabbath. Is that allowed? Oh, rules, 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 right? Their silence before Jesus' questions is damning. It's damning. They say they love the Lord. They, they don't know the Lord. Oh, they need to be born again. In their rule-keeping uh, of legalistic, extra-biblical rules, they had, they had completely missed the point of the law. Let's be real clear. The point of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the point. That's the, the law is good. God is good, right? They didn't get it, and they're the teachers how terrifying. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus is saying, have you not read? By the way, it's the most insulting thing you could ever say to a Bible scholar. That's all they do is read. All they do is read. And he's saying, yeah, but, but you're not understanding. You're not understanding the point of the words you say you so understand. You're teaching everyone else, but you're a blind guide. You're trying to lead people to life, but you're, you're, you're dead. He, I'm Messiah, Jesus is saying, essentially. I'm doing all the works of the kingdom right in front of you, and you can't see me. You want nothing to do with me. You're blind. Think about it. Isn't there something wrong with your heart if you would just take a man or a woman who's suffering and have them suffer for another day because, well, this is the day we should rest. <laughs> 
<laughs> crazy. Religion always wants to pit God's law against God's mercy. That's what it is. It's not, it's, it's not more confusing than that. It's, it's really not. It's not more confusing than that thought. That's when it gets toxic. It's when it gets toxic. Well, I don't know. Is that loving? Right? A good indicator that you're drifting from the heart of God is when self-made rules would prevent you from showing mercy to someone and helping someone. Yeah, I just don't know. I don't know if God would like me to show mercy. He would. (laughs) You might have to define what mercy looks like. And it can be tricky, especially in the culture that we live in in this world. But to love, I think you should always roll the dice and just say, I'm just going to love. I'm not going to affirm sin, but I'm going to love you. I'm going to accept you. I'm going to welcome you. And I'm going to pray that God would just do a miracle in your heart through the way I love. And through the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus says, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? First off, you got to be jacked if you're like pulling an ox out of a well. Like, like how, like, diesel, I don't even know if the rock could do that. But it would take some work, right? Maybe you get a team, maybe you understand leverage and all these different things. I would want Ron there, not because Ron's jacked, but his brain works that way, right? He's like, yeah, if we do this and if we get a fulcrum point, we could figure it out, I bet. Yeah, see, I know, that's why I want him there. Brian, I want Brian there. These guys, they're not going to sweat much, but they're going to say, if you do this, you want to sweat much too, right? <laughs> but get, get his point. You would save the ox, Why? Because it's going to cost you money if not. You would certainly save your son. You wouldn't holler down to the well and say, oh, hey, seven more hours. The Sabbath will be over. Hang in there. There's just no one who would do that. And yet what he's saying is you're letting a son of Abraham suffer today. Hmm. That's exactly right, Em. It is an mm moment. It should pierce their heart. And yet they stare back at him in silence. So he's, he continues. This is, oh, yeah, Gabe, you're so fun. So verse 7, Jesus continues. We're going to look at 7 through 11. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the place of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited him, you both, will come to you and say, give your place to this person. And then you will begin uh, with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when the host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Um, By the way, Jesus isn't just giving us a little bit of social IQ here, right? He's not making sure you get this. Imagine like Emily and they do, they just got married and and let's say they had the big table and everything and then just somebody that we don't even hardly know and they just go and they sit down where the best man's supposed to sit. 
Be like, what's up, bro? How you doing? Right? And like, bring the wine. Everybody would be like, who is this cat? I don't know who this guy is, bro. You gotta, you gotta go. You can, you gotta bounce. You can stay here. You can feast. You can enjoy. But you're not sitting here. How embarrassing would that be, right? This is hard for us to imagine. But Jesus is getting at something much deeper, right? In that time, dinners reflected a, a, a social status, okay? Honor and shame were matters of life and death, okay? Uh, saving face was almost worth dying for in that time, in that culture. And these cultures still exist. Jesus wishes to wake up his audience with a parable as he rebukes their pride. That's what he's doing, right? In our, our day and age, um, we're not really all that anxious about where we sit most often. Most often, right? However, we do have ways of demonstrating favor and honor to people or even receiving it, right? How many likes we might get on, on a particular platform of social media. Oh, I wonder why Susan didn't like something there, type something there, um, subtle ways of physical appearance, right? The, the certain name brands. Now, by the way, I like nice clothes and all those different things. Maybe a particular watch or a particular car or a particular neighborhood. But we want many times for, to, to stand out, for people to see us. And, and so I just want you to know that like, that social pecking order still exists in the human heart. It's existed ever since the fall. It just shows itself differently depending on the cultural narrative at the time, right? So this might seem distant from you, but I want you to know it's not distant from us, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those particular things, wanting a nicer car, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but here's where we run into problems. It's when our hearts crave recognition from other people to the point that it would cause us to behave different than we would in another social setting, right? So, so like one of my favorite little compliments I ever get is when someone says, you know, you're the same on Sunday as you are on Wednesday. And they actually aren't complimenting me most times because what they're saying is you don't generally line up for the dog and pony show. I, I, it takes a lot of work and effort and grace and Holy Spirit power for that to be true, but that's not true of me always. Give me a break. It's not, it's not true of you always. So I think you have to be aware when those moments happen, when you are, are willing to change really who you are, your values and your beliefs so that you could have someone like you. Because what it shows is you really don't understand to the depth of knowledge, which none of us do, the beauty of the gospel of grace, which is there's an audience of one. And if God approves of you, it really is okay if no one else does. The church has to get there. When I say the church, I don't just mean this church. God's people have to get there. It's going to take so much Holy Spirit power to get to a place where we're really only consumed with what it means to honor, to obey, to love, and to, to please the one who's done everything to make us pleasing in the sight of the Father. Then you're free. That's freedom. That's freedom. But these people are not free. Here's the deal. It's a slippery slope into sin of selfish pride. Selfishness always leads, it actually always reduces the importance of other people. That's what it does. And it enlarges the importance of your own self, right? You, you, you might step on someone else's back that you love just so someone could see you. I've done it. You've done it. It's, it's ugly. It's awful. When we see it, we're disgusted by it. But we've all done it, right? To be clear, though, like, I just want you to know this isn't an out there problem. This, oh, 
those wretched heathens, those pagans, they definitely do that. No, this is in the church problem. This is a God's people problem. Just pay attention to your own life. Pay attention to your own heart. Notice when you're wanting to be noticed and then say, why? Why do I need notice by that person? Oh, Lord, forgive me, right? <laughs> Remind yourself that the, that the King of Kings sees you, knows you, loves you, adopted you, died to save you, and I don't need the approval of man. That's freedom. That's freedom. And this is a fight you'll fight till the day you die. You'll not arrive. If you think you've arrived, you're in danger. It's when you think, yeah, man, man, I hope Jim's hearing this. (laughs) You need to hear it. When you start thinking other people need to hear that message, that's the message you need to hear, I promise you. So, So here's the deal. Ever since the fall of mankind, we've become very self-focused and very self-exalting. That's, that's the fall of mankind. We want to be great. We don't want to worship that the creator. We want to worship creation. We want to be worshiped. We don't want to glory in God. We don't want to magnify Christ. We want to be magnified. And, and literally, we'll use God to get magnified. How insidious sin can be and that's exactly what's happening with these Pharisees we're I just want to make sure you understand we're not immune to this we're not immune to this um all throughout the New Testament, particularly letters to the church, you'll hear this discussion of humility. Here's two texts. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. <laughs> Just imagine if you made that your life's aim by God's grace. Uh, imagine making much of other people. Imagine counting others more significant than yourself, what, what that might do in a city if, if you had 10 people to do that. God help us. Romans 12, 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. <laughs> I, I think I'm always the wisest guy, right? Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Shine the truth of your word into the dark corners of my heart as a saved man or a saved woman for the ladies and and create in me a clean heart. Create create in me a desire to even want to be humble, right? If you're not praying this or thinking this, my guess is you are, you're in danger of pride. It's never the person who thinks that, man, I really struggle. We all struggle. The point is, many people won't struggle. They just accept it. They embrace it. And they trample on other people on their way to the top, wherever they may be going. Well, the Lord won't have it. The way of the kingdom is the way of humility. It's not self-glorification, right? Which is why you and I, by God's grace and the power of His Spirit, in community must be a people who work hard to kill pride. And have the Lord replace it with a heart of humility. You, you want to see a, a, a church really have an impact for the long haul on a city. We get smaller, not bigger. I don't mean necessarily by numeric number. I'm saying in posture. We come to serve those who want nothing to do with us. We come to love those who want nothing to do with us. We count those who are our neighbors as more significant than even our own selves and our own privileges right? There are people within this church right now, I guarantee you, that would do certain things different 
if, if they were in charge, and yet in humility, they left churches that were like doing great things, and they were all excited about it, and it met all their little needs, but they said, no, I, I want to be a part of what God's doing here, so I'll just lay aside all the little things that ultimately, in the big scheme of things, are just small, and I'll be here, and I'll be inconvenienced, and I'll set up chairs. I could go worship where, where chairs are already set up. And it's not, we're not always trying to figure out the, the temperature in this room. It's either hot or it's cold. People are shivering or sweating. We can never figure it out. Light shining in, kids are crying. But they say, no, in humility, I'll gladly be here. I will lay aside my preference so that I can serve those who God's called us to love here. How do you kill pride? Well, that's not what the to- this topic of this sermon is. But here's what I would say. Um, It's asking the Holy Spirit of God to work the truth of the gospel deep into our hearts. That's how. When your heart's captivated by by the way that God has made much of you, listen, in spite of you, by sending his son to die for you, you'll begin to be freed from the enslaving desire to be recognized by others. And you'll begin to love. That's how. Uh, Tim Keller says it well when he says this, humility is a byproduct of belief in the gospel of Christ. In the gospel, we have confidence, not based in our performance, but in the love of God in Christ. This frees us from having to always be looking at ourselves. Our sin was so great, nothing less than the death of Jesus could save us. He had to die for us, but his love for us was so great Jesus was glad to die for us. I, I tell you, the way to, to, to pursue humility is to continue to look at the cross. It's pretty hard to be puffed up when it took the Son of God to be stripped naked, spit upon, nailed to a cross, dying in your place, and you're like, yeah, aren't I pretty awesome? No, this is what it required to save sinners like you and I. And so we should shrink we should shrink. Most often, when we're, when we're engaged in pride, we might be engaged in the Bible, but it's not to get to know God. It's so that we can get to know information so we can look smart in group. Oh, how tricky that can happen. It happens often. But notice that Jesus draws his own application point in verse 11. <laughs> he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. By the way, the main verbs here are what pointy-headed theologians call divine passives. Divine passives, meaning you don't do any of this in a sense. In, in he's, in he's, Jesus is alluding to the judgment. When you stand before King of kings, Lord of lords, King Jesus, if you would not humble yourself and receive grace and forgiveness, you will be humbled. You, oh, you, I don't want to confess you, Jesus. It doesn't matter. You'll bend your knee. You will confess that he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. Or on this side of Jesus is returning or you're dying, you can, by God's grace, bend your knee and say, oh, God, help me, a sinner. I need mercy. That's humbling yourself. You do that. Oh, at the kingdom, you'll be exalted. You might be nothing to anyone in this world for the rest of your life, no matter how hard you try. And in that moment, Jesus says, oh no, but you're my brother. You're my sister. The father says, that's my child, exalted. You inherit everything that the king has. By the way, King Jesus owns everything, all things. 
There's, how, how much further could you be exalted? He makes much of you so that we make much of him. Not because he needs it, but because your heart needs it. See, the way to pursue humility is through worship. You will, everybody worships. Oh gosh, it's so easy to see, right? You'll either worship Jesus, who is full of grace and full of truth, or you will worship yourself. Make no mistake about it. No one here is neutral. Nobody here is neutral. You're either worshiping King Jesus, or you are worshiping yourself. You're using other people to get worship too. God help us all. See, this is why we must strive to reference back to chapter 13, to strive to enter through the narrow gate, the narrow door. How do we do this? By getting small, by laying aside all things that would trip us up from receiving the King of Kings. We do this by God's grace. And and guess what? We need help from God to do this. You want some really good news? God loves to help. (laughs) Needy people. Guess what? There are only needy people. Right? So, so listen to, to 1 Peter 5, the second part of 5 through 7. It, it says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him. Why? Listen, because he cares for you. He cares for you. See, if you want to keep fighting God, stiffening your neck, hardening your heart, I'm going to do it my way like a Sinatra song, he'll oppose you. He'll oppose you, right? If, if a poodle's trying to attack you, you could pretty much oppose it. A little boot to the, to the chin, right? Oh, save all the PETA questions, right? I'm not saying kick a dog, but if it's trying to attack you, just like put it there. Don't actually harm it. Just give it a little shoe away, Right? If a pit bull is trying to attack you, it's a little more dangerous. If a lion's trying to attack you, it's a little more dangerous. And we could keep going up and up and up. It's going to get to a place where you cannot oppose that animal. It's going to overtake you. Okay, now imagine trying to oppose God. How well is that going to work for you? Okay, but if you want to, if you want to keep sniffing your neck, he's the ruler of all. I want a great life, Lord. I'm going to do it my way. Okay, we could do that. But I'm going, to, I'm going to kindly, lovingly, whatever it takes, bring you to a place where you'll bend your knees. Why? Because what you really need is you need me. I want to oppose you. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. You know what it took for me? You already know this, but it took 18 broken bones and a drunk driver smashing into the front of my car to have to take a year to learn how to walk again and have my mom treat me as though I was a baby in a deity to learn I need, I need rescued. Oh, and God in his kindness allowed me to live because had I died in that car wreck, I would have spent eternity in a real place called hell. I love my limp. It, It reminds me of God's tender mercy tender mercy. If I have to limp and have arthritis to the day I die, whoop de doo I mean, I'm for real. whoop de doo Some days I don't say whoop de doo I'm like, uh, well, right? It's like I got a man cold. <laughs> Serious business, ladies. I wish you could find out. But what you need to know is God humbled me. He brought me to a place where I realized, oh God, you're kind. But you are severe. 
you're a merciful God, but you are, you are very severe. He loves to help. Cast your fear. Cast your anxiety upon him. Why? The text says he cares for you. And he cares for your soul. Primarily. Never make a mistake about it. He's aiming to save people who don't want saved. That's everybody. That's everybody. Right? So, having given advice to the honor-seeking guest, Jesus continues. And now he looks to the host. This was a bit, this would have been the best party to be at. Um, unless you're one of the other people, which is probably would have been me, and then it would have been horrible. 12 through 14. And he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. <laughs> Whoa, right? Like, this is some dinner conversation. Jesus is telling the host about hospitality. And he's saying, listen, bro, you're not doing that great. I see what's going on here, right? Just to be clear, Jesus is not opposed to you spending time with friends and family, right? If you're reading this text, you're like, I'm never inviting anyone I know or love to my house again. <laughs> Only strangers. That would be interesting. You could try it. But I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at, right? Jesus isn't opposed to that. As a matter of fact, think about it. He accepted invitations into his friends' homes. He would go to Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus. He loved to spend time with his friends. We also see in the early church in the book of Acts and all throughout the epistles that the church loved to spend time with one another. They would feast together. They would sit under the apostles' teaching. They would worship. They would love. They would enjoy communion, right? Jesus told the church, God's people, the disciples, the world will know your mind by the way you love one another, which implies you must spend time together. Love is not primarily, oh, I really love you. Okay, love is much more many times like, I'll come mow your lawn because I know you don't have time right now and you're a single mom or whatever, you fill in the blank. Love is actionable. It's actionable. That involves feelings, but it's not primarily feelings. This is why it's so funny when people say, well, you know, it didn't work out because I fell out of love. Oh, if that's what ended a relationship, I would have been divorced 4,000 times by now. And it's not because my wife's not lovable. Oh, she's lovable. Not always, nor am I. It's because emotions are fickle. I'm committed to this woman. I'm committed. And she makes that a joy for me. But, but I'm going to tell you right now, love perseveres way more. Because if it's only about a feeling and you just quit, you'll all quit. Give me a break. It's about covenant. It's not about a contract, right? It's a covenant. I'm committed to you. Why? Because my God is committed to me, and I've blown it a trillion times, and he still pursues me. Oh, God, help us to have that heart. But what is he warning here? Well, I think it's clear. He's warning a haughty exclusivity. That's what he's warning, right? Church, we need to see hospitality through the lens of Scripture, which means hospitality literally means love of strangers. That's what it means. Right? Fellowship is, is love between the family, but hospitality is love of strangers. It's when strangers become friends, friends become family. It's how you get to know people, right? We don't do that much anymore. We just invite the people we already know over. But can I just tell you, we live in a very lonely and isolated world. 
is very lonely, very isolated. The New Yorker just released a bunch of opinion articles discussing the epidemic of loneliness. Listen to some of their reports. Loneliness is more dangerous than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It does more damage than drinking six alcoholic drinks per day. It's more unhealthy for you than being obese. It causes heart attacks and strokes, right? Now, now think about that. So maybe the Lord knew something about life, (laughs) insert sarcasm, when he said it's not good for man to be alone. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have companionship if you're single. You can and you must. So the church is a family it's a, it, hospitality is not about entertaining people. I like to be entertained. There's a time and there's a place for it. But this is about inviting people into your home, inviting people into your lives so that the Lord, through you, would invite them into his family so that they could be connected to God who loves them, who sent Jesus to die to save them, and to his people. Oh, we should be welcoming people left and right. Hospitality, then, is, is about loving and serving others, Right? Entertaining is about impressing others, right? Entertaining is about, often about the host, whereas hospitality is much more about the guest. Entertaining is oftentimes very shallow and superficial, whereas hospitality is about depth, depth and authenticity. Here's what I tell you. You know that you're starting to really get to a place where people feel comfortable when they start going through your cupboards. They start to go to your fridge, and they start to make a sandwich. Why? Because they feel at home. It's not when you're always rolling out the red carpet. If you want to do that, that's fine. That's fine. But when you get to a place where someone just kicks their shoes off, pulls the recliner, and says, I'm so glad to be here. You've created a place of hospitality. You've created a place of hospitality. This kind of culture, by the way, I've been praying we continue to create. This is why we do missional community groups. It's very important if you're not a part of a missional community group. We have one on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday. I highly recommend that you be a part of that. And you're like, well, those days don't work for me. Give me a day that does. We'll put one on that day. You can host. I'll lead. I'd be all about it. I'd be all about it. Why? Because you need, you desperately need community. Okay? So the reason this matters is, is because entertainment culture can creep into the church. It, it really can. Uh, religion's all about interviewing in a sense, right? Wearing a mask, pretending and performing, right? It, you're working your way up the social ladder, whereas the gospel is all about invitation. Hey, Gabe, will you put that down, please? Thanks. Uh, sorry, I was totally distracted. Maybe none of you heard that. <laughs> um, in a world, it's about climbing ladders, right? That's what the entertainment world is about. It's about climbing ladders to get up to the top. But the gospel is about building bridges. That's what it's about. It's about building bridges into communities. So do you only invite people, this is a question for you to consider, who are Instagram worthy into your lives? Do you have any smelly people in your life? physically or, or, you know, maybe they're not stinky, you know, because they don't wear deodorant, but boy, everywhere they go, they leave a stench because they're so messy. There's just a, a train wreck behind them. This is real. Because if you don't, you've might, you may have got to a place where you've only surrounded yourself with shiny, happy people. And I got to tell you, that's a dangerous place to be because church is never a social club. 
not like that. It's, it's not like that. Oh, and we're going to talk about this from day one to the day I die. The reason is because if you don't talk about it, you become that. And Jesus is talking about that. We desperately need God's heart to do what Jesus is talking about here. And he desperately loves to give it. Well, you feel how tense it feels right now? Some of you feel a little uncomfortable maybe. Well, someone else at the party felt that. Look at verse 15. When one of those who were reclining at table heard him, all these things, he said to him, well, blessed is everyone who will eat at the bread of the kingdom of God. <laughs> Do you get what he's saying? He's essentially saying to Jesus, can't we just get along? This is a little awkward, Jesus. I mean, you, you just put everyone on blast. The guy who hosted this party, he's on blast. The dude with dropsy, he bounced right? Can't we, we're, I mean, we're all blessed. We're all going to be at the kingdom. We're all going to be living it up, right? It's, it's just, it's all good, right? Well, not so quick, bud, because Jesus would not let this pious little puppet go on saying this trite saying and be like, yeah, it's cool. You're right. Pass the lamb. <laughs> he doesn't do that, actually. Not at all. And the reason is, is because this man is wrongly assuming that everyone's going in. Don't forget the audience. He, he's wrongly assuming, well, we're already in the kingdom. We're cool. And Jesus is there to say, mm, mm, nope, not so much. And you're going to see it all through Luke 15. And he's going to bring it to a point when he gets to the prodigal son. He's going to say, oh, he's in and we're partying. You're like the older brother and you're outside and you're angry. You're not partying. You're invited but you won't come. You're not coming to the invitation. I've invited you over and over, and yet you refuse. That's the point he's getting at right here. And, and so Jesus continues. He takes that insincere you know, comment that was made, and he says, let, let me tell you a story. And here's the story he tells, 16 through 24. He said, but, but he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come now, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, well, I've bought a field. I must go see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. What a fool. Women love to go to parties where they get to dress up. He could have went and been free. It had been good. They would have had a great night. He chose not to. So the servant said, and I, uh, I go and uh, nope. The servant said and came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the high wages and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Oh, <laughs> that would have been a moment. Well, I'd love to see their face after that story. Right? Do you, do you pick up what he's laying down? Jesus is telling a very simple story. He's, he's telling a story of a very influential man, right? And he's throwing a party and he invites many. He invites the best, he invites the brightest. And 
planning a party then would be really difficult, right? Because we didn't have Facebook where you could respond. We couldn't send you little invites where you could send something back. So you had to invite them. Then you had to send someone out and say, hey, it's time. Come party. And these folks are like, yeah, not so interested. Thanks, but no thanks. How rude. How rude. They have no desire to go. That's why they give lame excuses, right? Think about it. These are ranging. These excuses range in all kinds of uh, human activity, right? Financial. Mm, Think about it, right? I'd love to get serious about Jesus, but I'm too busy building my 401k, my Roth IRA. I would love to, Jesus, but, right? That's what they're saying. How about occupational, right? I got to go check my oxen. They already checked their oxen. Give me a break, right? This is about, well, I'd love to give you some of my money and my tithe, but not too interested. Family obligations. I'm married. You'll still be married if you go to a party, right? I just want to hang out with this friend group. In the end, they had zero desire to attend. None. They made an excuse. And I thought, what would this look like now? And I thought, oh, Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, (laughs) right? They're a big deal, apparently. But imagine they get married, and they invite everyone over, right? Oh, not everyone, just the best of the best, the elite. But imagine, just for a moment, this would be fun, the who's who list says, no thanks, not interested. And they just, nope, decline, decline, decline. This would not happen, but just imagine for a moment that it did. And then it's in a very strange twist of events. Trailer, that's what I've heard it. Trailer, Tavis, Swelsey, right? Back in my day, it was Brangelina, right? But imagine they then take their wedding invitations and they say, you know what? If none of those folks are coming, I just want you to go invite all the people off the streets. We're going to have it today. And they go out and they start saying, hey, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey want you to come to their wedding. When's it happening? It's happening right now. And they go out into the streets. They go to the, like, like the care homes, right? They go to the drug rehabs. They go to the homeless centers. And here they come. And they're smiling. These folks haven't been invited to something for a really, really long time, is my guess. And they can't wait to go party at the who's who party. And so here they come, hundreds of nobodies from hospitals, rehab clinics, retirement homes, straight up homeless people flood the wedding. You think they're having a good time? I think they're having a great time. That's the gospel. Oh, that's the good news. Jesus did not come for the good, the fancy, those who are self-sufficient, those who are successful, those who are glamorous in their own eyes. He came for the needy. He came for the weak. He came from the unpolished. And he said, come, everything's been prepared. You just receive. You just receive. I want to serve you. I've done everything. Will you come? Will you feast with the king of kings? That's what he's saying. This is the good news. That means the gospel is for us. It's for the nobodies. It's for those who live in perpetual fear that they'll never make it, that they'll never measure up, that will never be invited. And God has said, I invite you. Will you come? Or will you make excuses? Yeah, I would love to, but I'm kind of working at Chick-fil-A right now, Jesus. Got some things going on trying to move up. I'm not knocking Chick-fil-A, but how many times we say no to the King of Kings and And at the end of the day, you're going to stand before him and he'll say, I'm so sad because I invited you in and you would not come. I've done everything and you wanted nothing to do with me. You didn't want to party with God? Why? 
Why would you turn him down? Well, I have a ton of theological reasons, but right now I'm talking to you. Right now, would you receive him? What do I have to do? Receive him. Say yes to the invitation. Oh, yes, Jesus, I would love to invite you into my life because you've invited me into yours. Yes. Oh, I'm going to turn from my foolish ways, and I'm going I'm to trust you. I'm going to believe and put my faith and trust that you've done it all. Why this matters is because if we read this in light of the previous chapter, Jesus has been calling the Israelites to come into the kingdom of God over and over and over, and they refuse to come. How about you? How about you? We are the poor. We are the crippled. We are the blind. We're the lame. And God invites us into his great feast. The king of kings invites us to come party with him forever. And, you know, I've told you before, my wife's from the west side of heaven, and right? And what they say is there ain't no party like a, what's the words? Come on, help me out. You guys can't be this lame. I know you know hope. Ain't no party like a, it's a west coast party, but you guys are really, wow. You need to change your music. Um, Ain't no party like a Jesus party, though, because a Jesus party never stops never ends. You think, oh, is that, a, is that a good analogy? I'm telling you, it's a great analogy because over and over, Jesus talks about his kingdom as a party. As a party. You never hear that. Oh, I never heard that growing up, going to the VBS. It was always lame and people getting thrown in fires and barely living and tigers and fish eating you and puking you up. And it's, No, he wants you to come and party with him forever. And he's done it all. I'm there. They would have said that to me as a young boy. I'm like, I want to be with that guy. I want to be with that guy. He's done it all. Will you come? Will you receive Jesus? Listen, here's the point. I'm out of time already. We're going to go a tad over. Jesus offers the kingdom a perpetual feast of peace, friendship, rest, joy, tranquility, deathlessness, immeasurable hope, and ultimately salvation to you. Will you receive him? Oh, I pray you will. If you have, rejoice. No matter what you're facing today, rejoice. Why? Because that's your future. That's your future, and it's guaranteed. How do I know? Because he's given you a down payment on that guarantee in himself. He's given you the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells in all who believe. He has sealed you for the day of redemption, and you will feast with him in glory. He has done it. He's committed to do it. He will finish the work that he's begun, and he delights to do that. Yeah, but I got to do all these things. You got to do is receive. Receive him. And when you receive him, you receive forgiveness. When you receive forgiveness, you receive adoption. When you receive adoption, you receive righteousness. You're in the family and he is committed to you. And nothing can separate you from his love. Why? Because he's done it all. And I got to tell you, there is still room at the table, which means that the mission of God's not complete. Okay, I'm going to turn it around for the, those who are trusting in Jesus Christ now. Till the day Jesus returns, our mission's not complete. What's our mission? We invite people to come and feast with the King forever. That's what we do. Family, Christ has come to us. He has come to bring us into a family at a great cost to himself, at a great sacrifice. It costs Jesus everything to prepare this feast. 
It cost him pain. It cost him tears. It cost him flesh. It cost him blood. It cost him his life upon a cross. Jesus desires to have his house filled. That's why I'm here. I hope that's why you're here. There's people that are sitting in this room by God's grace who were not sitting at that table before we came to plant this church. I don't say that to make much of us. We're just some beggars. But I say that because I just believe God's not done saving in this city. I'm convinced there are so many more people out there that will come and receive the gift of grace if we just invite them. If we just tell them. If we just tell them that there's a God who loves them, who died for them, who sent his son to die in their place so that they may feast with him forever in everlasting joy. Oh, I think they'll come. Jesus is determined to have a full house. He will do it. The question is, is will we be a part of that inviting? I hope. I hope. Here's the thing. Many people will reject this message. But you cannot defeat or frustrate the grace of God. You can't. At all costs, he's going to fill up this house. He's already paid the ultimate cost. And here's the beauty. This is a feast for failures. So if someone says, yeah, but you don't know, I've blown it. I'm like, well, you apply. And, and you are, phew, you fit the mold. Poor, crippled, lame, failures. Here's why. Because the beauty of the gospel is it's all grace from beginning to end. He does it all. There's a man who said, grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. And that's what God's doing right here in this moment. Come and receive him. That's how Jesus has loved us. Come and receive him. That's how we're to show the love of God's grace to the world. Go and invite him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you seek those who have nothing to give. And, and even that statement's really not accurate because we have lots to give. We have sin to give. We have to give it to you. And you give us righteousness. You give us forgiveness. You give us your spirit. You resurrect us from our spiritual depravity and our death. And you raise us to new life with you. Father, if anyone is here not trusting in Jesus for their salvation, I pray that you would open their hearts and their minds to see that you have invited them, that you have done everything. And all they have to do is say yes to that beautiful invitation. And Father, for your children, those who are trusting in Jesus, for their salvation. Help us to be bold, hype people to invite people to the party. Help us to just go around telling everyone the good news that Jesus, you have done everything to bring the broken, the lost, the needy into your glad joy forever. Oh God, help us to do this. We desperately need your help. Pour out more and more of your grace upon your people. Lord, cause your goodness to shine in the city of Greensburg and to the ends of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.